are listening to the Unsung Lung Podcast, presented by Alberta Lung. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Unsung Lung Podcast. If you've been listening since day one, you already know that my name is Jacob Sperling and I am the host of our wonderful show. Thanks for being with us for our third episode of the pod and I am so excited to introduce today's guest and begin the interview. Before that, just some housekeeping items. As always, you can follow Alberta Lung on our social media channels to see our charitable programs, educational videos, and research that we have funded in the past. Twitter and Instagram are at LungABNWT, and Facebook is at ABNWTLung. Speaking of research, we currently have an ongoing competition running, and we are looking for lung health research proposals from across Alberta. If you are a physician or a researcher or know someone who is, please email me at jsperling at ablung.ca. That's J-S-P-E-R-L-I-N-G at ablung.ca. The proposed project obviously has to be lung health related, and we are just so excited to be able to fund projects across Alberta. I'll just note that as this podcast is live on May 1st, you only have 20 days to submit an application if you haven't already done so, as the application portal closes on May 20th. Our entire organization at Alberta Lung is fully committed to lung health research, as it is not only aimed at improving the livelihoods of those with lung disease, but research also encourages education, and the more we can spread about the word of lung disease and how prevalent and life-altering that can be, the better. So now on to today's episode. Our guest is a proud registered respiratory therapist and a moderator of our Better Breathers Facebook support group. Her name is Ursula Parento, and she has quite an interesting story of why she became a respiratory therapist, which is also known as an RT. But I'll leave that to her to describe for all our listeners, as she'll do a much better job than I would. I will mention that she started her respiratory career in 2008 when she began studies at NATE, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, where she eventually graduated in 2011. She loves educating people about their lung conditions and seeing the change in what they are able to do and how they are able to feel better. This is a close connection to all of us at Alberta Lung because, as I've mentioned plenty of times so far throughout this podcast history, we are all about education. So with that little background history on Ursula and her respiratory therapy journey so far, I'll put us right through into the interview and we can listen to a deeper dive into the profession of an RT. So in stepping away from discussing specific lung diseases, as we have in previous episodes, we are now going to discuss a profession within the lung health world. That specific profession is respiratory therapy, and I am thrilled to have Ursula Parento, Registered Respiratory Therapist, on the Unsung Lung Podcast. How are you doing today, Ursula? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Perfect. Thanks for joining us. So 
In our pre-interview correspondence, you told me a really touching story about why you became an RT. So perhaps you could give us some insight into that and why you chose the profession in the first place, I guess. Sure. Um, so first child was born with uh, a condition called diaphragmatic hernia, He, which means that he had a hole in his diaphragm. His intestines had grown up into his chest cavity, collapsed his lungs and pushed his heart over. So we didn't know before he was born that this was happening. They found out at once he was born. And so they sent him off to the stallery at the U of A and we had to have surgery at four days old. But having had nieces and nephews, I knew babies are supposed to move and babies are supposed to cry and they had to do all these things. And my baby was doing nothing, like literally laid on the bed, didn't move. All you could see was he's breathing. He did have a breathing tube in, he was intubated. So that made sense. But the lack of movement really kind of bothered me. And so I had kept asking the nurses, you know, what's wrong? Why is he like this? Oh, the doctors have ordered medication. The doctors are taking care of him. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And if you've had a baby, you know, postpartum, your brain doesn't always work well. So uh, the RT saw that I was a little stressed out about the situation and spent about two hours after her shift to settle me down and go through his chart with me and explain what was going on. Once that was done, everything else came after. It was easy to handle. And that kind of always stuck in the back of my head when I decided I was going to make a career change. So I had worked in environmental chemistry for 10 years and I decided I wanted to do something new. So my husband agreed to let me go back to school and I chose to become an RT for two reasons. Uh, one, that that always stuck in the back of my head, right? So having that help, having that person who cared enough to take time out of her personal time and help me. And then I can't honestly deal with poo and nurses deal with a lot of poo. So I thought diaphragm up, I'll never have to deal with poo, right? And that's kind of what really drove me after I did my job shadow for both professions. I'm like, oh, this is easy. I can deal with snotties and throw up and all sorts of things, but poo I can't deal with. So yeah, that's why I became an RT. And I've been one for now. It'll be 11 years this year. Amazing. That's right. That's a really great story. It's it's really interesting, not interesting, like I guess kind of heartwarming to know that there's a, there's a story behind your career choice. Not everyone gets that. Some people are told what to do by their parents or or just fall into it because they like it, but you actually have a, a really yeah. heartwarming story. And now you, I assume you love the profession as you've been in it for oh, over a decade, a decade. Yeah, and I keep trying to learn. I keep trying to do things that will help, you know, kind of get me to where I can help my patients or where I can educate my colleagues and stuff too. We've done some, you know, in-servicing on different uh, things like CPAP and BiPAP and yeah, it's a lot of fun. I I really, I have not in 11 years um, thought, geez, I didn't make the right choice. Right. You know, so it's, it's, it's a really rewarding career. Perfect. Awesome. So generally uh, we'll, we'll kind of take it from macro look here. What does the average day-to-day of a respiratory therapist look like? And what does yours look like if that differs from it, I guess? (laughs) (laughs) Well, mine does. I do, um, most RTs go into it. They end up working in the hospital. So working in an ICU or an emergency room uh, or doing it like acute care, working the floors of the hospital. So their day is usually they figure out who they need to see, right? So they look at their 
patient list. They'll have a check. They'll prioritize, see who they need to see first and then go through their day and do what needs to be done. So like they'll do assessments, they'll do medications, they'll do education if it's needed. They'll do, you know, you have a tracheostomy that needs care. They'll be the ones that go in and do that kind of care. So, and they're also usually part of the code team in the hospital so that, you know, when there's something happens, unfortunately, they're one of the first responders to help with that situation. Where mine is different. I started my career in private healthcare. So I worked in a private clinic doing CPAP and BiPAPs. So helping people with their sleep apnea issues and getting them situated, testing them, uh, getting them on their equipment, getting them compliant with their their equipment and making sure that they were able to carry on using it. Uh, And then from there, I've done pulmonary function testing, which anybody who has any kind of lung disease always should have a pulmonary function test done to ensure that they have the right diagnosis, right? Um, And I've worked also at the swabbing center when COVID hit really hard. I was working out of there doing nasal swabs on hundreds and thousands of people. So I've seen a lot of noses this past two years. Um, And now the job that I have, I'm all over. I'm doing acute care, I'm doing emergency, but mostly I'm doing community care and supportive living. So working with long-term cares and supportive living facility, which is really where I, that's my kind of specialty passion is I love to go out and help people and, and educate. So I get to do that in my new position. And it's just a little mix of everything. Amazing. Yeah, that's really good. That's interesting that you mentioned CPAP. That's been a recurring theme over the past few episodes. Uh, I, I've mentioned uh, before that we reinstated our CPAP refurbishment program at Alberta Lung. So we take in used CPAPs and we're able to refurbish them with our partner at Sleep Therapeutics and give them out to people who need it. So it's good that um, that's where your career started because it's kind of just yeah. all cycling over here with the, <laughs> that's good. the podcast. Yeah. So you that's mentioned, awesome. yeah, you mentioned that. Uh, a lot of respiratory therapists, RTs work with uh, doctors and hospitals. So as part of your daily activities, or maybe the general respiratory therapist daily activities, do they deal a lot with physicians? And do you communicate regularly about your patients? Or do you often work quite independently? Um, it's a little of both. It depends on what stream you're going through. Community care RTs, they get the orders from the doctor to go out and do stuff, right? Like do a palm spirometry or get a blood gas because they can't get out or do some education type stuff. And then we can bring something back. We can usually call that physician and be like, hey, so I noticed they're not doing as well. We should maybe look at doing, you know, a chest x-ray or doing a sputum sample. And so there's a lot of collaboration that goes on between RTs and physicians, but also RTs and nurses right? Because it is two completely different. I know a lot of people think that we're nurses with that respiratory therapy kind of angle, but it's not. They're two totally different streams. They're two totally. So it's really nice that you work in a collaborative environment. So for me working right now with supportive living, I also work with physio. I work with uh, occupational therapists. I work with speech language pathologists. So I can go in and see somebody and be like, oh, hey, you know, they're not doing so good today. Maybe they could use a little bit help walking or they could use a little bit. I noticed they're drooling. They need a maybe a, a, a swallow assessment done, right? So when you get to see these things and work with the other specialties, and especially with the doctors, it makes the team cohesive. And more than that, it really supports the patients right? It supports the patients getting the right treatments and the right things, because we don't always get to see a physio and we don't always get to see OT and the doctor doesn't always get to see you either, right? So being able to have that open communication really works well. Right, exactly. And you mentioned nursing as a profession. So I'm going to skip a question and ask you this (laughs) one now. So how would you differ your profession from those of nursing? And you mentioned that it's not 
simply nursing with uh, a specialty in respiratory and the respiratory system. So can you make maybe take a deeper dive into the difference there? Yeah. So for us as respiratory therapists, we really function on uh, the lung system, right? So what's going on with your lungs? Why are you having these issues? What treatments can we give you? What kind of medications can we give you? Where nurses are more holistic in their approach to the whole system, right? They have to look at, you know, do you have diabetes? Do you have, you know, what kind of medications you're getting? What doses of medications you're getting? We can't do that as RTs, but we can give the respiratory medications, right? So if you need an injection of morphine or you need, uh, you know, your heart pills, we can't give that as a respiratory therapist, but a nurse sure can, right? And so it, it works well that, and I'll tell you, most nursing friends that I know are happy that I deal with the snotty stuff and the phlegms, and I'm happy that they get to deal with the bottom end of things, right? So it works collaboratively quite well. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that, that, I was really curious about that because I, I wasn't sure how that worked. Uh, when I was doing my research on respiratory therapy, I kind of found a lot of overlap, but um, we can't generalize and say that RTs are just nurses with, with a little bit of a specialty. You have to understand that they're completely different and for a reason, right? Because the respiratory system is so complex that you kind of need that that more specific outlook on things. That's true. And and the education wise, like we go to uh, Nader State is the programs here in Alberta. It's a three year diploma program. Nurses have to do a four year degree program. So theirs is a little bit more intense in the types of courses and stuff they take. Don't get me wrong. I've done a degree and I've done RT and by far going in eight was the hardest thing that I did. Right. Like the course load and stuff was way, way, way more than what I had done when I'd gone to university for my yeah. first degree. Absolutely. Would you say that Nate, I, I know that Nate compared to the University of Alberta or Calgary, they're, they're thought of as more hands-on. Is, is that a fair assessment? And that RT is much different than a university degree. In assessment. That? Sorry. And yeah, I would agree that it's definitely a different uh, environment. Like it's also for us as RTs, uh, we do kind of, the program is set up in a three-year program. So you do kind of two years of hardcore classwork and your last year is basically seminars and um, going and being precepted within the environment and learning the different disciplines within RT work. So your last year, not only are you going to school and having to keep up your grades and study, but you're also working full-time on top of it, right? So it's, and I know nursing has their co-op, like they do a section and then they'll go into the, they'll do their clinicals, right? But that's all part of that four-year program that they have, right? So it's all tailored to whatever they're learning at that time. Um, so it's kind of similar in that regards. We do get that hands-on experience in our third year of, of school. Good to know. Yeah, that's really good to know. So let's take a little bit of a turn here. And mm -hmm. when I was writing my questions, I kind of thought that this might be overstepping a bit, but we love stories on on the podcast and and they just kind of tie everything together. So can you maybe describe one of your most challenging experiences with a patient? Because this is the first time, as I mentioned, that we've had someone, uh, a, a profession specific episode. So to be, to, to talk about maybe your patient experience, that would be really worthwhile for our listeners. I can actually tie it into your CPAP BiPAP stuff too. So that works well. Uh, I had a patient come in, in my probably third year of being an RT. He'd been discharged from the hospital because he needed to be on BiPAP, but didn't want it. Didn't feel he needed it, but the doctor was emphatic that he absolutely had to have it. Right. And the reason being is that he was fluid overloaded because his heart wasn't working as well. So then with the heart not working well, it was putting pressure on the lungs. And so he wasn't getting enough oxygen. So BiPAP helps to work both systems a little bit. Right. So 
when he came in, he was adamant, this is not what he was doing. His poor wife was with us because I do a lot if I'm doing teaching or educating. I like to have a family member around too, because, you know, with a lot of patients, a, a lot comes in their appointments and they can't always remember everything. And they're focusing on the one little thing that they don't want to do or that they really are against or that they really want to take on and try, right? So having an extra family member there to help kind of navigate is always, always good. But the doctor pretty much told him he doesn't get to come out of the hospital unless he gets on it, right? So they, they sent them to us and we got him sat down. And so what we, my first appointment with him, which was an hour long, I didn't even put him on BiPAP that first day. I had him come back the next day. I really wanted him to sit and think about it. But we went over all the why he needed it, why he was going on it, what the benefits are going to be. And his uh, answer was, well, they put it on me in the hospital and I didn't feel any different. And you hear that with a lot of people that do respiratory stuff. It's a lot of the background things that happen. Medications, I don't feel like it's working, so I'm not going to take it anymore. But it's the behind the scenes stuff, like you're not coughing anymore and your inflammation in your lungs comes down because that medication you've been taking on a daily basis works, right? Same thing for CPAP, BiPAP. The more consistent you are with your treatment, the less you're going to feel it, but the more effect it's going to have on your overall health quality. And so we went over everything and I said, come back tomorrow. So I booked him in and I said, we're going to start you out. So I called the doctor, let her know about his reluctance. And we, with the doctor, set up a plan that we would start super, super low and then work him up to where he needed to be to make sure he was being treated appropriately. And that took us about every two days he would come in, we'd look at the report, we'd see, okay, that's working. Let's bump it up a little bit more. Oh, that one, that day didn't work so good. Let's leave it here for a couple of days. Let the body adjust. And so within three weeks, he noticed a huge difference and he was sold on it, right? So going from, I am not going to do this to, I am absolutely against this to, oh my God, this is saving my life in three weeks was, it was a huge rewarding thing, but it was so challenging and so difficult, even in that first week and that second week to really get him to kind of buy into, this is going to help you long-term. And actually I got a Christmas card mailed to my house. I don't know how I got my address. I must've got it from the clinic because I haven't been working in CPAP in that environment for about two years. And it came saying, thank you so much. It's been five years and I haven't missed a day, right? So it, it's good, but taking the time, that's the key is people have to learn to take the time with their patients, even in a, in a stressful environment like the hospital, taking that extra couple minutes puts people at ease and it makes your job that much easier. Yeah, that's a really great story. I was, to be honest, I was expecting something really sad or something <laughs> like that when I when I asked the kind of a touchy question. But uh, it, it does sound like a very challenging situation. And but just the fact that you were able to turn it around to something positive, I guess, speaks to to your your will and and your expertise in the profession. So thank you for thank you for doing that for someone that we obviously care about as well as in someone with lung disease. So um, mentioning how you, how you'd love to educate your clients. What does this education look like? I guess more specifically, and you mentioned before, but I'll, I say I, I have it in the question, so I'll ask it again. Um, does it more than often than not involve family or spouses of the patient so that they can learn, uh, I guess, the procedures as well? Yeah, it can definitely um, do that. It depends on the patient, right? Sometimes patients don't want their spouses involved. They just want to deal with it, get it done and do it themselves. And that there's nothing wrong with that, right? And I always let my patients know, like, if you go home and you're talking and, you know, your spouse has questions, they're more than welcome to call me as well. Because putting you at ease is one thing, but being able to put your spouse or your family members at ease as well is the second thing, right? So we get you on board and doing that. For me, educating is the, the primary is why are you here? What is your disease process? Do you understand why you're here, right? Once we can get that 
do you understand why you're here? Then we can look at, okay, what are you doing now that's helping? And what are you doing that's not helping? And then kind of navigate that. Okay, great. You don't have to work on the things that are working, but let's add a few things that are going to help those things that are not working, right? So we use care plans. That's one thing that we use a lot of for like, especially for COPD and asthma. So you, you know, it works on a three-phase system. You have a green light when you're good, yellow light when you're having some little issues and red light when you're like, really, oh gosh, I don't know if I should even be here and I should be going to the ER. So we set them up with approval from their doctor to ensure that, they're on board that the things, the changes that we're making too are working and we're constantly updating and navigating because you can be stable for years and all of a sudden it goes sideways. And so your care plan isn't working anymore or your medication regime isn't working more. Well, let's do some investigating as to why it's not and go from there and, and progress that plan. Right, that's really good to note. So I, similar to my, not similar, into, integrating into my next question, I, from my research on respiratory therapists, I found that uh, RTs often develop patient treatment plans. And is that the same as a care plan? That's exactly. That's, we call them care plans. Okay. It's the same thing as a treatment plan. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So and, can, and most, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, most people can find, um, like if they're not hundred percent sure what that means, if you type in respiratory or COPD asthma treatment plan or care plan, either way, you're going to get pictures of it. And it looks like a stoplight, red light, yellow light, green light, and it has all the different things. And so based on symptoms, based on disease process, we can put what will work well when you're stable and everything's good to, you know, you get a bit of a cold or a flu or your allergies kick up, something like that. Then here's kind of a yellow zone It's like, okay, we need to be more cautious. Can we maybe need to bump up medication or we need to do more exercises or we need to do some things there. And then the red zone being okay. Like, uh, nope, we're going to the ER because I have, I can't get stay in the yellow zone. So it's, it's a good cause it's visual. Right. And a lot of people, they learn visually. So I can sit and talk to you about things. But when you physically see it set out on a plan, it helps you stick to it, too, because you can post it on your fridge. You can post it in your medicine cabinet. There's lots of places to put it. Right. Right. So when when a patient would come into your office, is there kind of more a I don't know how to ask this, but like a specific treatment plan that you guys go over together. And then when you send them home, it's more general, like that red, yellow, green, or is it kind of just you want to show tailored. them? It. Yeah, so it's the opposite. So the plans oh. are kind of set up generally, and then we tailor it to the patient. Okay. Right. So whether, and most times the doctors will tell us exactly what they want them doing, what kind of medications they want. So then we feel that helpful then, and that's what tailors that plan specific to the patient. But uh, the, people can get a general one online and be like, oh, well, okay, that makes sense to me. And they can pretty much fill it themselves if they've had a condition for a while or been using medications for a while, right? Right. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So along with the previous question on care or treatment plans, are there any specific lung diseases that you've found to be especially difficult for patients to follow their treatment, uh, their specific treatment plans? Um, I would say COPD treatment plans are a little harder to follow, you know, tend to be more stubborn and not as accepting of their disease process. And especially when it changes to the negative side, not the positive side, then it's like, well, why am I doing this? Why am I following this? It's not working. I don't feel any better. And that's the biggest thing with treatment plans. They're there to give you guidance. They're not there to specifically tell you to, you know, this is what's going to happen and how you're going to flow. Um, so for me, and, and unfortunately, like asthma with kids and teenagers, right? I don't need it anymore. I'm 
16 and I feel fine, but then they go out and play soccer and, you know, have an attack and they don't have their medication on them or they haven't had their medication filled because it's now expired for four years because they haven't had an attack for a little while, right? So those little things, knowing that, so it's always good to, you know, talk with your respirologist or talk with your RT if you have access to one and be like, hey, you know, I haven't looked at my plan in a, you know, a year or two or three. Maybe I should do that, right? And and just have it updated. If it stays the same, great. But if it doesn't, then let's make the changes so it's better and it's easier to follow. Perfect. Yeah, that's good to know. So in our previous episode on the Unsung Lung podcast, uh, we, myself and our guest, Dr. Bhutani, discussed the interaction between the pulmonary and the circulatory system. So is this something that often comes up in your day-to-day duties or is it kind of more specific, tailored to the patient? It's, uh, I would say it's more about the disease process, right? So uh, yes, you're, it's kind of like, I call it the marriage of not happiness. So when your heart has a problem for a long term time, chances are you may get a lung problem from that, right? Because your heart's working so hard, it can't pump the blood through your lungs as good. And then all of a sudden you're having these lung issues as well, or vice versa, you start having a lung issue. Uh, and then that, because of the strain of the lungs, not being able to get the blood to the heart in a, a timely fashion, then causes the heart. So it's kind of, is it the chicken or the egg or the egg or the chicken? It just depends on the disease process, but there's a huge correlation between the two systems. So if you treat one system and the other system is having some issues and you don't treat that, it's just going to make that other system, whether it's the heart system or the lung system, work harder and actually become less effective and harder to treat. And same way, if your heart's hurting, then your lungs are going to start hurting. If you don't treat your lungs when your heart's hurting, if they're having issues, then the same thing happens, right? So I see that a lot with uh, pulmonary fibrosis patients, right? Because the restrictive process, the lungs do have to work harder. The heart does have to work harder. So having said that, it it can tailor into having a heart issue that comes up because of the the lung issue. Right. And I just thought of a question just now in in relation to your education. And do you, I think about a podcaster that I listened to and he has cystic fibrosis. Does your education ever, do you ever find yourself in kind of less of a formal education and more of a, an emotional support for people like those who maybe have a terminal lung disease? Do you ever find yourself in those kind of situations? Absolutely. Yeah, I have in the past. And just from a personal perspective, right? Like um, my mom uh, passed away four years ago from lung cancer. So having to go through that, not just knowing the process because I'm a respiratory therapist, but watching it as a family member and, and seeing how it progressed and how things got different and what we can do and what we can't do. And, and having the, just to be there for my mom was more to be an emotional support than to be the RT on that side of things right uh same with my my mother-in-law passed away from pulmonary fibrosis it was idiopathic they have no clue why she had it but that sometimes happens and so to watch her the decline from she she was never sick i've known this lady 30 years of my life and never sick and then all of a sudden within two years it just progressed that quickly for her going from one liter to five liters to 15 liters of oxygen, watching her, you know, struggle to breathe and not have an appetite because she's working so hard to breathe and all her energy is just putting put to that. So I get to see both sides. So I find that I have a little bit more compassion and empathy towards that and being able to have that discussion with people about, you know, kind of end of life stuff or palliative care stuff, or what can we do to, to assist. And, and a lot of it too, I find is more, I, I like to, yes, we have this potentially terminally, you know, terminally 
um, disease process. But let's talk about the effect on you and your family. Like, what can we do to support not just you, but what does your family need? Does your family need respite care? Do they need to have a healthcare aide come in and help you get bathed and dressed? Those kinds of questions come up quite frequently. It doesn't happen often in my thing, but I have had people be like, I don't know what to do here. Like, I, I just don't honestly don't know what is there what can we do so then I get them you know to talk with their doctor about give them a list of questions they can ask or give them uh, information on how to get a hold of you know a palliative care nurse or care team within their with their scopes so it's it's definitely I do play the emotional thing too and you know people don't want to know that they have a disease that may be limiting and lung diseases unfortunately have a tendency to be more limiting so what can we do to help you get past the negative side of it and let's look more on the positive side of things. And that's what I try to do with my patients is, yeah, you have COP. Yeah, you have asthma, but you can still do things. Yeah, you have pulmonary fibrosis and now you can't mow your lawn. Well, you could, but it's going to take, you know, 45 minutes instead of five that it used to. But the point is you can still do it, right? So let's look, we can always dwell on negatives as human beings. It's just what kind of our, our nature goes to. So what can I do to put a more positive spin on what they're having and what they're doing? That's what I try to do with my patients. Right. And that's really great to hear because we've done some research recently at Alberta Lung on palliative care, palliative and end of life care. And unfortunately, a lot of it turned up that it was kind of just monotonous and like getting your questions answered, but no emotional connection whatsoever to the nurses or if you're calling 211. And so it's really great to know that there's people out there like yourself that care about not just the patient's well-being, but the family as well, because that can take a toll on the family. And if the family isn't emotionally right, they're not going to be able to to take care of their their loved one who is suffering and maybe not suffering, but in, in, in an end of life state. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got really good nurses, especially um, like having worked with my mom, we had a palliative care team come in near the end there. And the nurse was phenomenal. She had been on it. She knew my sister's a nurse. I'm an RT. So she knew my mom was in good hands, you know, when we when we did the end of life stuff. And just to be able to have somebody to talk to. Like she said, that was probably and I asked her, how do you do this? She's like 90% of my job is, you know, having a conversation and listening listening to the family, what their needs are, and making sure that their needs are being met just as much as the patient's needs are being met. Right. Perfect. Yeah, that's really great to know. And it, it ties more into what, what we love to do here and helping people and educating. So that's perfect. So I guess we'll kind of slowly wrap things up here. And for our final question, I'm just wondering if you can relay to our listeners something that you think is important in the lung health world, but perhaps not talked about. Maybe an oversimplified stigma or something you'd like everyone to know about those with lung disease that maybe the general public takes for granted? I think for me, the biggest kind of stigma that most people with a lung disease have is when they have to go to oxygen, right? So when they have to go to oxygen and they're wearing a mask or they're wearing a cannula, which is what 99% of people do, and they've got their tank with them, or they've got their little portable oxygen concentrator. Uh, it's, you know, they're, they're, people are looking in and going, oh, they're on oxygen. It's like, oh, I don't want to, I don't ever want to get there. But you know what? That's helping that person live their life the way that they need to live it at that point. Right. And then the stigma comes from the patient side being like, oh my God, you know, what are people thinking? What are they, you know, what are they going to say about me? Honestly, I tell my patients, it doesn't matter what they say or think about you when you're wearing your oxygen, but you need it because you don't want to be that person that, you know, is driving and passes out or that person that is walking down the street and, you know, goes into a, 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 um, 
has an issue because they chose not to be seen with their oxygen on. So you got to get past the negative side of it and look at the more positive health benefits of it and just do it. And when people ask you, just be honest, right? I have a lung condition and I need this to survive. So yeah, I'm carrying my portable concentrator or I have my tank in a little cart behind me because that makes me be able to go and do my groceries and go to my doctor's appointment and go play bridge with the ladies or go for coffee with the boys, right? Those sorts of things. So it's it's important to get past the stigma of wearing some sort of oxygen tubing on your face in public. You just got to do it. Right. I, I also worry about maybe younger kids that don't want to, just for example, I'm trying to think back to my childhood, but if you're you're in gym class or something and you have, you're starting to breathe heavy and you're having a little bit of a exercise induced asthma attack and you don't want to whip out your, 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 puffer, uh, yeah. your puffer inhale because you don't want to be looked down upon. Right. Yeah. I, 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 I fear for those kids because, and it's even worse when you're younger because of, well, I won't say worse, but it could be worse because of peer pressure. Right. So yeah, it's all about, I think that side of things has changed a bit. I've seen a lot of, cause my son's been involved in indoor soccer and lacrosse and there was a few kids that had their puffers. And so they would actually have them on the bench with, in the medical kit. Because they knew, right, at that point, you need it. If you don't, I mean, nothing looks sillier than you passed out on the floor when you could have taken your puffer and, and relieved yourself, right? Right, exactly. And then another point that I wanted to ask you about, uh, have you comment on, is kind of this choice versus genetic. And that we, we've talked about it a lot at Alberta Lung and that a lot of the time, it's not your choice. So a lot of people think you're smoking you smoked your whole life. You deserve this. You deserve to be on oxygen. You actually don't even deserve oxygen. I'm paying for it through, through taxes, whatever, something horrible like that. Can you speak to maybe a choice versus a genetic disease? And I guess both don't deserve to be humiliated and, and degraded in, in public or anything like that. And, and maybe anything you've seen or, or I guess just your opinion on that front. I, I agree with you on that. It doesn't matter how they got their lung disease, whether it's genetic or from circumstance. The point is they have it and they have to, they are the ones who have to live it. So humiliating or commenting or rebuffing people uh, when they have that kind of stuff or, oh, how come you can't do that flight of stairs? Well, because they've got COPD and they just can't do it. So don't get, you know, I, I, it bothers me when I see stuff like that. And I will call people out on it. I honestly do. I'm kind of, I have sometimes no filter and it gets me in trouble, but I, I can't stand to see that kind of stuff. Like you don't live in their shoes. You haven't been in their world. They could have just got diagnosed or they could have had it for 20 years. You know, you don't know the guy who worked on the pipeline that now has sarcoidosis from the asbestos that we all thought was good, but ruined his lungs. That's not fair to him to be judged like that. Oh, he must've smoked. That's why he's there, right? Not everybody's lung disease comes from smoking. And that's the biggest takeaway I would say is just have some compassion for, for the people that are in that situation and be like, you know what, be thankful. It's not you. Yeah, exactly. Well, perfect. This, this was an amazing discussion. I didn't really think that we would get moral and, and talk about stigma and stuff <laughs> as much as we did. I thought I'd be getting an educational lesson because talking to an RT, you obviously know your stuff, but it, it crosses over. We it, it's, it's social always. It's not just education and, and oh, for sure purely science we have to take into account that people have emotions and yeah and things of that nature so yeah i guess yeah it's one of the things that i work with is i work with the better breathers group for alberta lung as a moderator on their facebook page so we can help people ask those questions to help people get information and just honestly to have a safe environment to talk about 
those stigmas and the what can I do things and how you're feeling and doing check-ins with everybody. And so it's a good, it's a good group to be a part of. I'm, I'm actually quite happy to be there. Yeah, it, we, we're, we're really appreciative of everything you do for us. I mentioned that in the introduction uh, that that you work as a moderator for us, but it, I'm glad that you explained a little bit about what that group is. Um, did you want to touch on a little more? Is, is, is that? I think it's just, yeah, if you if you are interested, just go to Facebook and look up the Alberta, because there is one for BC called Better Breather Support Group, but it's the AB Better Breathers Group. And um, you'll see, you just asked to be a member and, and it's not just for people with lung disease. It's also for family, right? So you don't, you could have somebody that has a lung disease within, and you're just looking to get some support and some questions answered, right? So it's, it's for the families, it's for the support, it's for the, the people with the condition. So it's a really good group to be a part of. Yeah. And, and just to mention, it is a safe and it's a vetted group. We make sure that everyone within it is is legit so you won't face any kind of criticism or anything like that it's a safe group that you can you can get educated uh within so if if you need help definitely look that up uh okay i guess before we end i'll just ask you once again ursula if you have any any pressing thoughts you want to get off your chest or last minute <laughs> no it's good i think it was a off? fantastic yeah it was a fantastic interview thanks for asking me to be a part of it no worries. Yeah, we're always looking to to educate ourselves and grow. And and while we can talk about specific lung di- lung diseases for days, as there's dozens, it, it's important to know about those who help with those specific lung diseases. So, yeah. Okay, perfect. So, thank you again so much, Ursula, for being a guest on the Unsung Lung Podcast and sharing your career as a respiratory therapist. So, with that, I'll put us through right to the outro. Thanks again to Ursula for being a guest on this month's episode of the Unsung Lung Podcast. Just a few concluding thoughts as we always do before wrapping up the show. So I'd like to thank her for sharing that amazing story she had about her firstborn and how uh, they had a respiratory illness and that kind of inspired her to take her own journey and career change to be an RT. So I think it's really inspiring to take something that... I guess traumatic as as a mother, a new mother that she was, and turning it into something incredibly positive. So I guess that's a really good lesson to take from the episode uh, this month. Something else that I took from this episode being the first ever rendition of uh, an Inside the Profession themed episode that we've had is how RT, being an RT, a respiratory therapist, is actually much different than being a nurse and how nursing is completely holistic and they have to go through a little bit more rigorous training. In saying that, respiratory therapists have to be a lot more specific. So knowing everything with the respiratory and the pulmonary system is incredibly important for, obviously for a respiratory therapist to do their job correctly. So I think that it's important to know the difference, to know that a respiratory therapist isn't just a nurse with a specialty in that they have to know their own, their stuff really well and just the specificity that comes with being an RT and having an appreciation for that. As this episode was all about education and how an important facet of the respiratory therapist job is education, I think it's important to have a concluding uh, notion about education and how not only does it revolve around formal education being a respiratory therapist, but it also involves palliative and emotional support for those in an end-of-life stage or specifically those who have a very troubling 
and I guess debilitating lung disease and how they have to not only be there to educate and provide that kind of support through the lung disease process but also how they have to be an emotional support for the patients and their families so that they can the families can provide that support and not only be kind of bogged down and and always saddened by the disease process but they can have a little bit of emotional support and and know that there's someone there for them at all times the final point that i'd like to make and possibly the most important one is about stigma and how Ursula and I talked about morality and being kind to those with lung disease. So we never know what someone has gone through, whether they made choices that eventually led to their lung disease or they didn't. Maybe it's genetic and a lot of the time, a lot of the times it is. So being kind to those people who have oxygen concentrators on them and have to have tubing on their face and those who have asthma and need a puffer, being kind to them and not judging them and saying why why do you need that medical equipment what are you using that for we're, we're just doing light activity or anything like that we really have to look at ourselves in the mirror and kind of say we don't have that problem we don't have to deal with that problem every single day of our lives so having some compassion and being able to sympathize with these people that have such a debilitating disease maybe it's not debilitating but they need medical equipment to live and just accepting that and being there for them and just treating them as humans. I think when it comes down to it, that's really the most important thing. So as this episode was all about education, if you'd like to learn more about a specific lung disease and the programs that we offer for it at Alberta Lung, you can visit www.ablung.ca. By visiting our website, you can also find the link to our Better Breathers Facebook support group. As Ursula mentioned, this is a group for education and getting to know others throughout Alberta who have the same lung disease as you and can empathize with the trials and tribulations that you've been through yourself. Remember to follow us on all of our social media channels. Twitter and Instagram are at LungABNWT and Facebook is at ABNWTLung. For more information specifically on the Unsung Lung podcast, please visit www.ablung.ca forward slash unsung lung. Remember that if you'd like to recommend topics for future episodes, there is space to do so there. If you'd like to support the Unsung Lung podcast directly, you can visit www.patreon.com forward slash unsung lung. That's www.patreon.com forward slash unsung lung to become a patron and help our show become even better. I am currently working with a lung health partner on June's episode. That show is going to be based on a product that needs to be talked about more as it can drastically affect your lung health in an incredibly negative way, but I'll leave that for next month. So in concluding the third episode of the Unsung Lung Podcast, as always, just remember to breathe.